Hi everybody, Adam Going here with the Chip and Chase Rugby Podcast. This is episode number two. In today's episode, I talk about the importance of good mental health, the bad boy of English rugby, Owen Farrell, and what is going on in Irish rugby. If you enjoy the podcast, then please show us some love. Give it a good rating. That'll inspire us to keep producing more content for you. So here it goes, episode number two. All right, all right, all right. We're back. Here we go, episode number two. Live from my office at home here, so we're back to tell the tale for another week, which is pretty cool. We didn't get cancelled. I'm not sure if you can actually cancel podcasts or not, but we sure as hell didn't get cancelled, so that's a good start. Massive thank you to everybody that tuned in last week. Our numbers for listeners, subscribers and downloads were way higher than I ever thought possible for the very first episode. So big, big thank you to everybody that that tuned in, that listened, and also that provided content for us in terms of topics and for the feedback that we were given as well. There was some really good feedback, both positive and negative, which is good because this is obviously a work in progress and we want to make sure that this is educational, entertaining, and you can also go ahead and, and execute with something after the podcast is over. So massive thank you to everybody for, for all that love and support. Lots to talk about today. Last week, last Thursday was World Suicide Prevention Day, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Going to get into the bad boy of English rugby, Owen Farrell. He seems to be in the headlines for his tackling more often than not these days. And then I'm going to do a little bit of a state of the nation on Ireland and kind of talk about where they are provincially, nationally, what's going on in the game and what I see going forward for them over the next year to, to two years or maybe through this, this World Cup cycle as a whole. So there's no time like the present. Let's get into it with with mental health. All right, so the first topic is that last Thursday, which is the 10th of September, happened to be my daughter's third birthday, which was an amazing day, but it also coincided with World Suicide Prevention Day. And this is a topic that I wanted to address right off the bat because our mental health is incredibly important. And I think in society, we're starting to learn that more and more with every day, week, month, year that goes by. But there's still a certain stigma around talking about your mental health, especially in the rugby community, with with men. And you can see the reason why that's the case. Rugby is a collision sport. It's barbaric in nature at times, very confrontational, very physical. You don't want to take a backward step. You certainly don't want to show to your opposition that you have a weakness, especially not a mental weakness, and you want your teammates to know that you're bulletproof. And you can do all of those things on the pitch and at training a few times a week, no problem. But the issue comes whenever training ends and the games are over. Because whether you go back to your partner, your kids, maybe you're single, maybe you're at school, maybe you've got a job, whatever the case is, you have to deal with yourself again. You have to sit with your own thoughts. You have to look yourself in the mirror and not have the support network of your teammates beside you that you did on a Saturday afternoon. And this kind of goes hand in hand with what I said last week about using rugby as a form of escapism because a lot of us have done that, including myself. But when the rugby ends and you're left with just your own thoughts, 
for a lot of people and it's probably way way more people than we ever would contemplate we can't be alone with our own thoughts we struggle to to analyze ourselves we we struggle to get better on things we struggle to pinpoint why we're upset or what's going wrong and a lot of us including myself have done this where we turn to distraction we turn to our phones we scroll and scroll and scroll through every app we've got we check our messages 10 times because we think somebody might have texted us uh, you'll go on youtube and watch endless videos that don't do anything you'll sit on netflix for hours at a time and all of these things are just a form of distraction so that we don't actually have to deal with ourselves and that and all of those can lead to a very very dark dark place now i've never experienced any thoughts about hurting myself or hurting others and certainly not about suicide and i consider myself very lucky to have not had those thoughts i have however been depressed and i'm not just talking about oh i, I feel kind of down uh, i've never been clinically diagnosed with it but i i put safe money on on the fact that I have been depressed and I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't have any confidence in myself about who I was or what I was doing in life. I didn't want to I didn't want to do anything. I really struggled to gain any energy and I'm pretty sure that, that I was depressed. And the only way that, that I was able to pull myself out of that was by realizing that I'm not alone in this to start with. There are so many people within your own circle of friends and family that have probably experienced something similar. And then if you extend that even wider to your neighborhood, your community, your city, your province, your country, whatever, the numbers are unfortunately incredibly high for people that have experienced or are going through something similar. And whenever we there's something wrong with us in life especially on the physical side of things we tend to seek help immediately for those physical ailments so if you're feeling sick you might go to the doctor if you've got an injury in rugby you'll go see your physio if you hell even if you've got some financial questions you're not sure where to invest money you'll talk to a financial advisor right because what you're doing is you're saying in all of those situations i need help I don't know what's wrong with me and I need you to try and fix me. But when it comes to our mental health, there is such a stigma and almost people almost feel ashamed of saying, fuck, I need some help. I need help. And you know what? There are people out there. There are psychologists. There are therapists. And these people, just like every other job, there's a spectrum. You'll have excellent ones, average ones and absolutely shit ones. But what they all are, are incredibly educated on how to deal with your emotions, how to deal with behavior, how to deal with your thought process, how to deal with the mind, the brain, everything that's that's connected in that realm. And there's a lot of unbelievably good psychologists and therapists out there, but we tend to think, no, I don't want to reach out for help because it means there's something wrong with me and I'm weak and I just need to toughen up and grind through it. But the fact is, we don't, and you shouldn't do that. And I say that having done that myself. It's not easy, it's not pleasant to try and grind it out yourself. If you feel that you may be on that depression spectrum, 
you have to firstly talk to your partner, your family, your friends. You don't need to have an intervention, but you need to talk to people close to you that you feel that you can trust and then get their advice, listen to what they have to say. They may, may be able to help you without seeking help after that, but there's absolutely nothing wrong in seeking help out. And if you do seek professional help, please don't ever, ever feel ashamed by it because we are all fucked up. Every one of us in this world, my best mate, I mean, we talk all the time about how we're all fucked up, including us, but we're all just fucked up in different ways. We all have family drama. We all have family issues. We all have body issues. We all have confidence issues. We all have doubts in our mind about can we do something? Can we achieve something? How many people do you know in your circle that hate their fucking job? It's probably a lot more than you think. But it's a, the thing that unites us all together is that we're all human and we all experience a wide range of emotions every single day. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you this is exactly what you need to do or anything, but if you are feeling depressed, sad, you feel like you're in a rut, you're maybe anxious, nervous, worried, about, especially about the world that we live in right now, Pubs are closed, restaurants are closed, cinemas are closed, gyms are closed. Some countries you can't go outside for more than an hour to exercise. In some places you're not allowed to pr practice your religion. In Melbourne, in Australia, they're under a fucking curfew. Like all this stuff is happening and it leads to a lot of anxiety for the public. Uh, and especially with the economies, economies around the world are crashing, small businesses are shut down. I think it's something like 40% of small businesses in Canada have had to close their doors, which is it's heartbreaking because those little mom and pop shops keep communities going. They work really hard and people are now in a, in a position where they might be stressed about where am I going to get my next mortgage payment from? How am I going to put food on the table? There's no jobs available. How am I going to get back to work? And all of these can lead you down a dark road. And I would never for a second suggest that none of these things matter and you don't need to do that and go down that road because the feelings that you have and the emotions that are coming out in you are there for a reason and they're there for you to recognize that you need to deal with them and you need to be able to sort through that in order to progress with your life now if you don't deal with those they can they can snowball pretty quickly and you can find yourself eating a bag of chips and a bunch of shit every night sitting in front of Netflix, no even no energy, you have no desire to see anybody, you have no sex drive, you don't give a shit about anybody, you just don't give a fuck. And that is not a good place to be. Our lives, all seven billion of us on this planet, our lives are a very, very precious thing. And we all of us only get one crack at this world. And some people make the absolute best of it and good for them. And some people have average lives and some people have shit lives but no matter what you're going through please know that your life does matter everybody's life matters you might think that my life doesn't matter to anybody else it does you have a positive impact on somebody somewhere you just may not be aware of it so if you're in a similar position to i am where you don't feel these feelings but you think you may know of somebody that is on that is on kind of that depression spectrum a little bit use this next week set yourself a goal reach out to at least one person 
that maybe you haven't talked to in a while that you think oh shit I, I should really check in on them or if it's a grandparent somebody elderly somebody that lives by themselves whatever the case is make yourself set yourself a goal this week to reach out to somebody because asking for help seems to be viewed as a weakness in society and people won't always ask for it so take the first step and reach out to somebody that you feel may need it they may tell you to go fuck yourself okay my best mate is a grumpy shit 24 7 and no matter what happens he seems to be grumpy all the time so i don't know if, if i would ever know if he was actually depressed or not because of his personality but take that first step reach out to somebody let them know that you're there for them and alternatively if you are having negative thoughts if you are feeling depressed you aren't enjoying life you're scared you're anxious please take that step and reach out to somebody for help do not not ever be ashamed of saying i need help i, I want to get better all of us want to get better in certain aspects in our life if you go to the gym and you're lifting weights you're saying i need help because i'm not strong enough that's fine nobody's judging you for it Okay, it's the same with your mental health. Fuck, I'm fucking depressed. My life is shit. No problem. It's all good. Go talk to somebody. No one's judging you for it. Reach out to somebody. Let's have that conversation and let's move forward. All of us in society, but more so this is aimed at the rugby community, we have a massive role to play in mental health. And if you're a male player that's listening to this now, don't pretend to be bulletproof 24-7 because nobody's bulletproof. We're all human beings. We all experience a wide range of emotions every day and we need each other and we have to lean on each other when times get tough. So as a whole, as rugby players, as a community, let's make sure that we're not ever adding to numbers of depression or suicide. Alrighty, next up is England bad boy, Owen Farrell. So for anybody that hasn't been following this, Mr. Farrell uh, tried to decapitate Charlie Atkinson of Wasps last week. He went flying into him with a swinging left arm. The first point of contact was Farrell's forearm on Atkinson's chin, which is a pretty high tackle considering Atkinson is over six foot himself. And poor Charlie was knocked out cold before, before he even hit the ground. So I've had a I've heard a few people and a few people have contacted me saying it wasn't even a red card. Well, listen, at the end of the day, it's not just my opinion, it's everybody's opinion it was a red card. If you go into a tackle swinging with swinging your swinging your forearm with incredible force and what looked like serious intent and your first point of contact is above the neck, you're fucked. You're going to you're get, you're getting a red card every single day of the week. Now, if you look at the mechanics of the tackle itself, it was really per technique from Farrell. He went charging in without slowing down. It was a blind shot, which which is allowed, I guess. I mean, you don't have to slow down when you're tackling somebody. But the fact that Atkinson's over six foot tall and the first point of contact was around the neck, he didn't slide up from the chest up. Like the first point of contact was on his chin. When you're going that fast, you have really you really struggle with, with control and being able to control yourself in, in that hit. And that's exactly what happened with Farrell. That left forearm connected with him really high. Right, oh, it, was just a, it was a really, really bad, bad tackle. So anyway, he was up in front of a disciplinary committee last week and they entered him 
the band started at 10 weeks and that's because the panel were were under the belief that it was a severe a severe incident and it warranted a severe punishment and and I agree with that that was, since these new laws have been brought in to try and protect players more with concussions and protect the players head and neck that was probably the worst tackle I've seen actually that was the worst tackle I've seen since these laws have come in so the big issue then that arose from all of this was Farrell's ban was cut in half from 10, ga- 10 weeks to 5 weeks now I think that, that he's a lucky lucky boy to get that reduced and I think he's even more lucky in how it was reduced in the circumstances around it being cut in half because if you roll back just a couple of years ago in the Lions tour of New Zealand in 2017 Sonny Bill Williams got a straight red card for a shoulder charge on Anthony Watson's face now in that certain situation Anthony Watson was actually ducking he had lowered his body but Sonny Bill still went in with his typical rugby league style and wiped him out that was a red card for sure Sonny Bill got a three game ban for that and that's not the first time Sonny Bill's been up in front of the the disciplinary committee and he got three games go back to the world cup last year Reese Hodge of Australia in Australia's opening game against Fiji was cited after the game for a tackle on the Fijian open side and it was a massive collision where you two players were running into each other at full pace and when that happens it's very hard to wrap your arms around them so I'm a little bit on Reese Hodge's side for this but regardless of my thoughts he was up in front of a disciplinary committee and he also got three games he missed the rest of Australia's pool games in that world cup so Sonny Bill and Reese Hodge both got three games for tackles that were deemed bad but for Farrell to only get five games and getting that that 10 games reduced to just two more than those other guys seems really strange given the fact of how severe his his tackle was now the England coach Eddie Jones and the Saracens director of rugby Mark McCall as well as some players went in and gave testimony speaking to Owen Farrell's character both on and off the pitch I think a charity that he either owns or not owns I guess but works with or is affiliated with they spoke about all the good work that he does with that charity and all those were taken into consideration as well as his past behavior and then it was reduced to five weeks now I, I have a I have a bit of a problem with this because a lot of players have said well he's never been sent off before so he's got good behavior and that counted towards it his his ban being cut and I can see that. I, I can understand that. But it's not Owen Farrell's first offence. Was it three or maybe four years ago? He got a four or five game ban for... I can't remember the exact incident, but he got a decent sized ban. So for people to use this as an excuse saying, well, he hasn't really done... Well, he has. There's precedent that's been there. And I don't think the three or four years ago is long enough to just wipe the slate clean and start again. And with how, with how severe the tackle was as well, it certainly warranted more than more than five games and five weeks. And the fact that in these disciplinary committings or these hearings, which I don't know if it's like a deposition or not, but and but I'm pretty sure there's lawyers involved. It's there. It's a very privileged conversation, so we'll never know fully what what went on. But when you have a charity coming in to talk about your character 
that you do with them and the charity work you do. Like, I don't, I don't really agree with that because nobody's saying that Owen Farrell's an asshole outside of rugby. No, that's not in question. He might be an asshole, he might not be. But that, but that is irrelevant to what he did on the pitch. Because what he did on the pitch was show blatant disregard for another player's welfare by striking his forearm around, the, around his chin at an incredible force with serious intent. So the fact that he does charity work is irrelevant. And I think rugby has a real problem in being able to separate the facts from emotion in a lot of these cases because the facts are that it was reckless, it was careless, it was incredibly dangerous and he's gotten away with it. And he, yes, he's the England captain, but he's, he's the England captain at 28 years old and he doesn't seem to know how to tackle effectively yet. Like that, That's a big worry. And I think it's a really bad message to send to young players that are out there that might be school level or have aspirations for playing for their country one day. Because what it's saying is, hey, you can you can skirt the, the not skirt the laws, but you can play on on the edge every single game you have. You can get sin binned. You can be up in front of the disciplinary committee in your past for something else, get a ban. But then you, we're going to allow you one complete moment of madness where you're allowed to put another player's welfare in under question and almost rip their head off and we're only going to give you a five game ban because it turns out you're a super good person away from rugby and you do a bunch of charity work now i'm not trying to get on owen farrell's case it's not his fault that the ban was reduced okay it's up to the disciplinary committee and that panel to to take all the evidence good and bad and i know character references are a big thing but his character wasn't under question outside of rugby and until rugby can separate the emotion from the facts, we're going to continue seeing bans that should be more severe than this being reduced. And I feel like he got a little bit of preferential treatment because he's the England captain. I don't think he should have been thrown to the wolves. I don't think an example should have been made of him. But they entered it at 10 weeks. And I think that was a good place for it to be and for it to end up because he's really going to think about if he got a 10 week ban, that's his season over. Like He's done. And he's going to really think twice about doing it again. But now it's like, well, I got let off with it. And is he going to continue playing on the edge? I would assume so. And I don't think it's a good message to send to the rugby world. I don't think it's a good message to send to youngsters. I think he's a really lucky guy to do that. Or sorry, to get away. Not to get away with it because it's not he didn't make the decision on his punishment. But I think the rugby judicial system needs a bit of an overhaul in and how they assess these things Ugh, charity work like who fucking cares you took somebody's head off on the pitch and that your job isn't we're not questioning your ability to give back to the community and help out we're questioning your ability to follow the laws of of rugby which you clearly didn't in that instance and now you have to pay the piper so i'd love to hear all of your thoughts on this so send me an email or shoot me a message on on instagram because it's a topic that I think needs to be talked about a little bit more. I'm not trying to drag his name through the mud or anything, but the judicial system in rugby, like it needs a little bit of a look at. Like we can't be having this where players are seriously injuring. Like Charlie Atkinson was knocked out cold. He could be out for six weeks with serious concussion, and he's out for a longer time than Farrell is, who took his head off. I don't know. That doesn't seem right to me. But yeah, let me know your thoughts on that. I think that'd be. A pretty good a pretty good uh, topic to to continue to, to discuss 
State of the Nation on Irish Rugby. Oh, now, this is something I've been looking forward to for a while. Obviously, I have a vested interest in all of this being Irish and following them my whole life and actually knowing a few of the players over the last 10 years. So, this is this is a really curious case because, what was it, a mere two years ago, 2018, Ireland were on top of the world. They were number one in the rankings. They had beaten everybody they came across, won the Grand Slam, won a test series in Australia, a clean sweep in the November internationals, including another win over New Zealand in what might have been Ireland's most perfect ever performance. And then to go from that into the cataclysmic decline that was 2019 and their fall from grace was pretty spectacular. And then we're now in 2020. They've only played three games, obviously with with COVID shutting everything down. They were able to get in games against Scotland, Wales and England. And once again, England managed to embarrass us. So the last three times we've played England, we've conceded like 130 or 140 points, something like that. Um, but Irish rugby as a whole is, is actually in a very good place provincially. The game is probably as strong probably as strong as it's ever been provincially. Ulster and Leinster competed in the Pro 14 final on Saturday and Leinster came out on top on that. They're, the strength and depth that Leinster have is quite frightening. It really is. And I think it was the commentator that said during the game that Leinster have used 55 or maybe 56 players this season so far in their squad. I've no idea how you're able to keep 55 players happy all season round and get them all enough game time to keep them engaged. But that that's quite phenomenal. Um, uh, whereas Ulster squad is very small. They might have about 34 or 35 players in it. So for Leinster to use 20 more than them and have quality in all of those positions are is frightening. Munster... Got to the semi-finals, they're flying high. And Connacht are always a bit of a surprise package. They always seem... They, they, they lack consistency, but they can always pack a punch when they need to. But on a provincial level, I mean, Leinster will probably do the double this year. They're, they're only three games away from completing the perfect season. Their league campaign, they were 25... Or, yeah, for their league campaign, they went undefeated in the Pro 14, and now they're 25 out of 25 in all competitions. So they're in the quarterfinal of the Heineken Cup against Saracens next week. So, I mean, if they can get another three wins, they'll have won the European Cup again for the millionth time. They'll have won 28 out of 28 games, which, as I said, is pretty impressive and frightening. But there seems to be this inability to replicate the provincial game's success onto the national stage. And I know the 2018 Ireland had a lot of success, but the provincial teams were playing okay. I think Leinster might have won the Heineken Cup in 2018. But as a whole, there doesn't seem to be that replication of, of game plan and success on the national level. And I'm not too sure why that is. Now, I remember Joe Schmidt being coach of Leinster. And they were tearing everybody up in Europe and playing some of the best rugby you could see. And then when he became Ireland coach, he didn't bring that game plan in. And... He became a lot more conservative in his style of play. He became a lot more conservative in his selections. And that kind of seems to be the way in Ireland, unfortunately. 
the IRFU puts such a heavy emphasis on winning as many Six Nations games as possible because of the commercial revenue that is generated that there's so much pressure on the team to win that the coaching staff will kind of revert back to what they know and revert back to who they they know as opposed to taking a chance and trying to not change things up for the sake of it but try to evolve their game plan because in the last what maybe three years now Ireland's game plan in the Six Nations hasn't changed one iota lots of box kicking based on a possession game based on being very clinical around the ruck and making no errors and that's great but teams have figured that out now and there needs to be an evolution of that and I think it's very hard for the Irish players going into into the Ireland camp trying to play a game and a style like that because none of the provinces play like that Ulster play a very fast high tempo game with lots of out the back runners lots of options everywhere they don't play a kicking game but they like to play touchline to touchline and they use their big men like Stuart McCluskey and Marcel Coutier to get them over the gain line, get offloads in and really attack teams. Leinster are in a similar mode to Ulster, but almost they're on steroids doing it. They're not on steroids, obviously, but their game plan is Ulster's on steroids. And Leinster have options every everywhere on the pitch. There's lots of offloads, there's lots of encouragement for the players to play what's in front of them, to play heads-up rugby. They're unbelievably cl- clinical in their ta- in the tackle, at the ruck. They can, they can go 25, 30 phases if they need to, but they can also strike after two or three. Um, Munster's game plan is a little bit more similar to the Irish game plan with in the sense that it's a lot more confrontational and it's a lot more physical and they like those collisions but if you look at the Munster team and then if you look at the Ireland team that that makes sense because in that Munster team you've got Peter O'Mahony, CJ Stander CJ Stander and you've got Connor Murray at nine box kicking and that's exactly what Ireland bring in to replicate which again is, is very very strange so I mean, as a whole, Irish rugby is is in a pretty good place. You've got a pretty young squad. There, there's a few old timers knocking around. I mean, Johnny Sexton will be in a wheelchair any day now. Um, Peter Romani is would be what 32, 33 as well. So you've got a few old timers there, which is good for the young fellas to learn a little bit from and get some guidance. And especially in in, in Sexton's position at out half, like you, it's. I'd have some incredibly hard position to play and having someone there like him to coach and guide these youngsters through a game is that experience you just can't buy but there's there isn't really a successor to Sexton right now which is very worrying and I, I think Sexton's the best I'd have in Ireland by default because there's really nobody else to challenge him Joey Carberry is going on a real bad he's got real bad luck and he can't get a run of games together the poor fella can't seem to get out of bed without breaking his fucking leg or something. So his backup at Munster, JJ Hanron, isn't up to international standard. At Leinster, you've obviously got Sexton and then his understudy, Ross Byrne. And Ross Byrne's a very, very good player, but is he going to be the linchpin of the Ireland team for the next seven or eight years? I don't know. I can't see it. I He might end up being it, but again, it might be because of default because there's nobody else there. Ulster have Billy Burns and he's 
he's English to start with. He's Irish qualified, but I don't think Billy Burns um, has what it takes to cut it at international level. You saw in the Pro 14 final, he made a lot of very basic errors. And yes, it's a final, and yes, the pressure's on, but the pressure in that final is nothing compared to a World Cup quarterfinal, semifinal, or final. And you only get one shot at those things, and I don't think Billy Burns has what it takes to do that for Ireland. The number two at Ulster is Ian Madigan, who I'm a big fan of. I think he will end up in the Ireland squad this November, but again, just like all the other ones, almost at a default, because he's he's the second best out half in Ireland, but we had to bring him back from England. He spent two years in France, then two years in England, and the IRFU have recognised that we don't have an out half, so we had to bring him back, and again, he's 30 or 31, so at the next World Cup, he'll be 33, 34. Are we hanging our hopes on a 38-year-old Sexton and a 34-year-old Ian Madigan to get us through a World Cup? I'm not really a big fan of that idea. So we need to blood some new out-halves. I'm not sure where, where they are right now. I'm not sure what's happening. If Obviously at Leinster it's hard to get game time behind Sexton and Ross Byrne. Apparently Ross Byrne's younger brother is a superstar and he's an out-half. But if he can't get game time he needs to be shipped to one of the other provinces to get some game time there because Billy Burns isn't going to be an out-half for Ireland. So if he's... If he, if he doesn't have what it takes, what what are the IRFU and Ultra doing wasting their time with him? Um, so maybe get Ross Burns' brother up there. Again, same at Munster. Like, if there's some Leinster Tyros in that academy that need game time in, in the halfbacks, get them down to Munster or Connacht or something because they all play European rugby and they all play at a high standard. And it's important that we kind of blood these new players. We've got a three-year turnaround now to the next World Cup. And we can't go into it having played the same forty players that we're playing like now. It's just it's not gonna it's not gonna work in our favour. But as a whole, I think Ireland are in a very, very good place. They've got a, a good coaching staff there. There isn't gonna be too much of a deviation from the game plan from Andy Farrell in terms of what Joe Schmidt did before him. But I think over the next year or so, you will see a little bit of a change. Stuart Lancaster at Leinster is having a massive impact on the players there. I'd fully expect to see him and Leo Cullen, the Leinster head coach, being involved with the Irish setup at some point as well. Because the IRFU can only ignore the Leinster setup for so long in terms of the success and the conveyor belt of players they have before they actually have to take action and put either put Leo Cullen in charge of Ireland or bring him and Stuart Lancaster in in a consulting capacity but like Leinster are just a juggernaut right now I fully expect them to go the rest of the season unbeaten and they'll have won the cup double and gone unbeaten in both competitions which is unheard of in modern rugby so as a whole if Ireland can replicate or even partly replicate the success of the provincial teams on the international stage we're going to be in for a very very exciting 2020 in November when when the games get played if they stick to what they've been doing in the past I think it's going to be a frustrating 2020 I think it's going to be a confrontational physical game a lot of box kicking and who gives a shit about that anymore let's see some nice exciting rugby this Ireland team and squad their backline in particular there are some potential world superstars in that backline like Jordan Larmer is incredible holy shit he's got feet i've never seen an irish back that has feet 
like he does his ability to shift his weight left foot to right foot sidestep while maintaining full speed is unbelievably impressive and I've never seen an Irish back that can do that Jacob Stockdale on his day is one of the best wingers and finishers in the world Keith Earls is arguably Ireland's most consistent player um, and you've got a bunch of these Leinster guys these Leinster youngsters that are 18, 19, 20 coming through the system that are just chomping at the bit so I mean there's plenty of options for for the Irish back line and if we can just create some sort of game plan where we allow them, the players that I've mentioned, to just be unleashed, I think Ireland are going to be very, very well placed going forward. I will, however, put a bet right now that in 2023, at the next World Cup, Ireland still won't get past the quarterfinals. It seems to be, I don't know, just this mental block that we've got and unless it's addressed... And unless we not just change our style of play, but change our attitude towards the Six Nations a little bit, instead of playing five one-off games, we need to play it like the Southern Hemisphere teams do in, in a campaign. If we can change to get to that mindset, I think we'll get past the World Cup quarterfinal, but I haven't seen any evidence yet to suggest that we're even close to doing that. So as a whole... Yeah, I think Irish rugby is in a good place. I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do with this crop of players. But we're still not going to get past a quarterfinal of a World Cup. Alright everybody, so that's it for today. A massive thank you to everybody that has tuned in, that has supported us, that gives us feedback. We, we really do appreciate it. And keep sending all those topics in to us as well. You can send them to me via email at info at chipandchaserugby.com or you can jump across to our Instagram at Chip and Chase Rugby and send in some topics and, and content there. We really enjoy doing this and we really appreciate everybody listening to it. So for this coming week, I hope you have a really good week. Make sure you get out there, you're practicing, you're kicking, you're working on your skills and make sure you look after your own mental health and make some time to check in on a friend or family member to make sure that, that their mental health is okay as well. So have a good week everybody and we'll chat next Monday.